verses 9 through 14. Rise up, you women who are at ease, and hear my voice. Give ear to my word, you complacent daughters. Within a year and a few days, you will be troubled, O complacent daughters. For the vintage is ended, and the fruit gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent daughters. Strip, undress, and put sackcloth on your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up. Yea, for all the joyful houses and for the jubilant city, because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken. Hill and watchtower have become caves forever. A delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks. So this message is addressed to... The women who were... So they are not... They're they're complacent. They're self-satisfied. They are not grieved over the disobedience and rebellion of the people to God. You can compare the women back in chapter 3 that were haughty, proud, arrogant. Um, And what does he tell these women? Listen. Listen, because... All kinds of trouble. Trouble for what? Trouble for... The crops and the cities and the animals and the people and it's just going to be really bad. It's going to be a grievous time. It's going to be a good time for the animals. Delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks. They're going to have plenty of elbow room. Uh, So A lot of times when we're really self-satisfied, we're happy, we feel secure, when things are going badly spiritually, the Lord gets really upset about that. They should have grieved, they should have been moved to repentance. But no, they're proud, they're self-satisfied, they're complacent, God's going to bring them down. Comments and questions? How does this fit with one well, I think he's going back and forth again between the blessings in the future and the judgment now leading to the blessings in the future. He's going to say, 14 and 15, that all this is going to have a delightful wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. So you've got future blessings contrasted with the present punishment that was coming. So he kind of goes back and forth. Just, you know, from the future back to the immediate future and over to the far future again. I think so. I think the the women among God's people in that day and time. Logan. Is there anything significant about saying within a year and a few days? Just a time period. It's going to happen soon. Why do you think you're bringing special attention to the women? You know how women are. What was that? The women may be outnumbered, but we can do you some harm. (laughs) No, explain that. (laughs) 
Those who know, know, and those who don't, don't need it. And he's got plenty of statements about the men. Why shouldn't he say some things toward the women? Seems reasonable to me. This kind of reminds me of how, you know, things seem to be going well for time. Um, you know, we seem to be going well, doing well in a certain area, or even in, in all areas of our life, and we get complacent, and it seems to sneak up on us, we go along, and we seem to fall. And even sometimes when, not just talking spiritually, but when you have a good time just in, just in your life, you know, things are going well, uh, no problems really, God seems to, but I, things seem to come in where problems are. And it really makes us pay attention to, for me, when I see something bad happen in my own life, it makes me think, well, yeah, I was getting close, and maybe I should, you know, focus more on the Lord. And I think this is definitely applicable for our lives, in saying that, you know, we can't be complacent, because usually, in my life, when I think we're complacent, things keep up, and I fall. Certainly. Other thoughts? In all seriousness, there's one reason they might be talking about the women so much is because, uh, well, you know, guys, we can get tired of distracted. Uh, we don't realize that we like Solomon, he looked at all the wives he had from Canaanites and Haman women, and they threw him away from God. But So, he's, you know, he might sort of be just seeping in from being married from place of women that don't care about God and men of Israel that have been harped on so much might be adding to it. Sure, I think you've got sins among the women, sins among the men. Got a lot of statements for both. Is this an attitude of just not caring? I, it seems to like to me. An attitude of self-satisfaction. <clears throat> 15 to 20. Until the Spirit is poured out, poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. No hail comes down on the forest, and the city is brought low in humiliation. Blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. Okay. These punishments continue until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. There are many texts in the prophets, especially Isaiah, that connect the time of Christ with the Spirit. And the Spirit being poured out, the blessings that will come through the Spirit, I would suggest perhaps Isaiah 44, Isaiah 61, as well as passages like Ezekiel 11 and uh, Ezekiel 36 and 39 and so forth and so on. Joel 2. You know, the blessings come when God's Spirit comes. When he transforms the wilderness into the fertile field, the fertile field into the forest, he'd already said that just a couple chapters ago. And this this time of blessing, very appropriately, is linked with what two special qualities? Righteousness. Justice and righteousness. We've seen that all the way back. 
That is the standard for God's government, the stamp of the Messianic era. And as a result of the righteousness and justice comes what? Peace. Peace. Security. Not the false peace of their complacency or of their uh, pacts with death, but the true peace that God provides when righteousness is sown and there is a, a, a true crop of peace, of security, of blessings. So, in this chapter, you see both blessings and judgments that lie ahead. You know, we start out with the blessing, then the judgment, and back to the blessing. The judgment's in the immediate future because of their complacency. But when the judgment has purified a remnant, then God will pour out His Spirit and give His grace to His people. Comments and questions? Where's the uh, passage about standard of justice or standard of justice? Uh, yeah, where was that? I'll find that quicker than I will. That's 28, right? 28, Yeah. Other comments and questions? I like in 17, assurance forever as a product of righteousness. It's almost like uh, maybe confidence in God. You know, you can no longer, you have to be, you know, wondering about what's going to go on. You can confide in God. Yes, he is trustworthy. Other thoughts? Chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. Woe to you, destroyer. While you were not destroyed, and he was treacherous, while others did not feel treacherously with him. As soon as you finish destroying, you will be destroyed. As soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their strength every morning, our salvation also in the time of distress. At the sound of the tumult, people sleep. At the lifting up of yourself, nations disperse. Your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts rushing about, as men rush about on it. The Lord is exalted, but he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. A wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. So we see the destroyer and the treacherous one who God uses to do a work of destruction and punishment. When that works over, what happens? They will be destroyed. Get a taste of their own medicine. In the moral government of God, for every scoundrel, there's a scoundrel to deal with him. You know, there's always the reaping of what you sow. So the Assyrians will be punished. They will do the work of destruction, then they'll get what's coming to them. He'll use the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians will get what's coming to them, and so forth. We can trust God to execute absolute justice for all peoples. So, here is the portrait of the faithful. Verse 2, what do they do? Wait. They, they wait 
on the Lord. Exactly. They trust in Him. They live by His resources. They view God as their daily strength for every necessity. Those are the people that God blesses. Those that depend on Him. They do not try to gain salvation by their own achievement or by political maneuvering or anything like that. They trust Him. They put their confidence and hope in Him. And look at what God does. In verse 3 and 4, you see the fleeing of the nation, the scattering of them, at God doing what? (laughs) All he does is stand up, and the battle's over. (laughs) So easily God defeats his enemies. The Lord is exalted, verse 5, he dwells on high. God is the source of everything that we need. He fills Zion with justice and righteousness. He's our stability. He's a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. He is more than adequate to give his people protection and wisdom and guidance in the international world. Just trust him. Reminds me of Colossians 2. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where else do we need to go? It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 where he says, By his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God is everything we need. Again, don't trust in Egypt, horses, chariots, or anything else you want to trust in. The Lord, let him be your strength, your stability, your wisdom. You're everything. Comments and questions? Alex. Does it mean, uh, woe to you, O destroyer, while you, while you were not destroyed, and uh, you as treacherous while others did not do treacherously? Well, you know, there's this time period where, say, the Assyrians were punishing Judah. <laughs> they probably felt like, oh, we're, we're going to be successful. Woe to you. This is just the lull before the storm. As soon as you finish what God assigned you to do, you're going to have it done back to you. So he's saying what to you because they developed an arrogant or whatever kind of attitude. Yeah, because they were going to receive the very same thing they'd given. Other comments and thoughts? Okay. Yes. I like the contrast of in the past you saw that the Lord had humbled others, had brought them low. We're talking about how He had brought them so low as they could barely speak from the dust. Other contrast, because in verse three, the noise of humble people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, and nations shall be scattered. So it's like, in my eyes, it's like a contrast. The Lord is raised up. The Lord's power is is on high, and yet. Certainly, and you see that in 5. The Lord's exalted. He dwells on high. Goes back to chapter 2 even. The mountain is exalted and everything else is brought down. (coughs) Going back to Alan's question. The uh, the Assyrians weren't a righteous nation when they conquered Israel. Not at all. God used their wickedness to do some good uh, to, to... try to put Israel back on the um, right path, but in the end he would end up punishing their wickedness that they had from the beginning. Yes, correct. I agree. Or he meant where they went farther than that, that God wanted to, didn't they? 
Sometimes that's the case. You especially see that with the Babylonians later. Yeah. Question kind of going along with that. I'm wondering, uh, to what extent do you think, or at all, was God punishing the Assyrians for their? Was He in any way punishing them because they were um, wiping out or were um, destroying Israel? Because it says, it says, "Ah, you destroyer, woe to destroyer, yourself and not be destroyed." It's almost kind of like He's punishing or He's judging them because they were destroying others when they were not being. Is that? I think so. And I think the answer is primarily in chapter 10 where he w- the Assyrians were used as an instrument, but that wasn't their motive. Their motive was pride and conquest. Does that answer your question? I guess. I don't think, that it's, I don't think they're doing what they did was wrong if they'd had the attitude that they wanted to do it for the Lord. They didn't care about the Lord at all. They were doing it in the self-righteous, we can do this, we're stronger than all these gods. Right, so, so God is punishing them, not because they were destroying the Israelites, because that's what he wanted to do, he was punishing them because they were so prideful and saying, you know, we did it all ourselves, and, you know, on our power, and, you know, we're, we cannot be, you know, no one can destroy us. That's what I think. That would be a parallel to a rather complicated thing I'll summarize in 25 seconds. In Hosea 1.4, God said he'd punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed at Jezreel. Where Jehu killed off all of Ahab's family. Exactly what God wanted done. But he clearly didn't do it for the Lord. Because after that his life wasn't faithful to God. And he even lied to get the Baal worshippers together to kill them. Something someone who really trusts the Lord wouldn't do. So God can punish somebody for doing the very thing he wanted them to do and the thing he commissioned them to do when their motive in doing it wasn't to serve God that's the way I look at that J.D. Well, it was like in Philippians 1 people were preaching for self-interest I and mean, it's good that they're preaching and Paul also said that but that he wished they were going to better motives. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, their effect was good, but they certainly wouldn't have a blessing in it for themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's the same. I mean, yeah. God told Saul to go punch Amalekites. That was not a good thing. Uh, and so if God had come to Assyria and said he'd destroy Israel, then they would do what was right, but it was because of other reasons. Is that kind of the yeah, they didn't do it because God wanted it done. They didn't care about that. They did it to, um, you know, enlarge their land holdings and to prove their superiority over the gods of every nation. But back to Jonah, it wasn't that God wasn't willing to be compassionate toward uh, Assyria if they would yield to him, which they did. Yes, that's exactly right. God had blessed Assyria in the past. When they turn to the Lord. Other thoughts? God doesn't compromise. Yeah. Okay, good discussion. So, 7 to 12. Behold, the heroes cry in the streets, the honor of the Highways lay low, travelers see. Covenants are broken, cities are despised, there is no regard for men. The land warms and languishes, 
Mother Ron is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Basham and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord, and now I will lift myself up, and now I will be exalted. You can see chaff and give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you, and the people will be as if burned to wine, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. The context here might be debatable. I'm going to take this as the situation in Judah at the failure of their uh, diplomatic efforts. Now, I suspect here we might be looking at when, according to 2 Kings 18, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Hezekiah had actually originally made a treaty with Assyria. He had sent tribute to Assyria. I believe that's verse uh, 13 and 14 of 2 Kings 18. The 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures, treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. That wasn't the right thing for him to have done. He should not have made a treaty with the Assyrians, but he did. This is a little bit earlier, perhaps. So, I mean, they've negotiated the settlement. We've got a peace treaty with Assyria. Everything's going to be okay. We lost a lot of gold, but the Assyrians are off our back. Yeah, right for about two seconds. Enjoyed the gold, they're back knocking at Judah's door. So, verse 7, their brave men cry in the streets. The ambassadors of peace weep bitterly. <laughs> they failed in their mission. The highways are desolate, the traveler has ceased. They're afraid to go out on the streets with the Assyrian knocking at their door. And they can't go anywhere. You know, they can't, they can't travel from city to city. The Assyrians are out there. He's broken the covenant. <laughs> Sennacherib reneged on the agreement. He's despised the cities. Um, there is a debate about this. This does not happen very often. Uh, I think I'm right on this. Somebody might be able to confirm this with their marginal note. I believe I'm right. Um, as far as what says this. Some textual witnesses say he's despised the witnesses, not despised the cities, which in Hebrew is a word really close to cities. I believe I'm right that this is a place where the Dead Sea Scrolls have witnesses and not cities. That actually, this is kind of ironic, but there was a contextual emendation, if any of you know what that means, uh, um, a textual emendation, that, uh, a kind of a a thought that somebody had that maybe it was originally witnesses some many century, many years ago. And the Dead Sea Scrolls actually confirmed that, that that may well have been the original reading. It makes a lot more sense to me and to a lot of people. He's broken the covenant. He's despised the witnesses. He, he didn't care about the witnesses of the covenant. You know, it didn't make any difference to Sennacherib what kind of witnesses there were that he made that agreement. When he wants to double cross him, he will, and he did. He has no regard for man. You know, he's a king of less what anybody thinks of him. You know, he's tough enough, strong enough, you know, king enough to do what he wants to. So the land mourns and pines away. Lebanon, 
noted for its cedars is shamed and withers. Sharon, noted for its flowers, like a desert plain. Bashan, you know, the great plains of Israel, noted for its vegetation and cattle. Carmel, lose their foliage. All these places where there's abundant vegetation, you know, this is just how bad it is. The most fruitful and flourishing parts of the country are desolate. <coughs> this is just how bad things were at this moment when Sennacherib reneged on the agreement and came, you know, back with a vengeance against Judah. What do you do in this situation? I mean, how do you deal with this? Egypt. Horses. <laughs> no. Verse 10. Now... I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will be lifted up. Man's despair is God's opportunity. Now, when things are at their utmost, you know, low point, utmost whatever, is that a word? Uh, God stands up. About all he has to do. God stands up and, uh oh, the Assyrians are in big trouble now. You've conceived chaff. You'll give birth to stubble. My breath will consume you like a fire. There's some debate about is that referring to the Assyrians? You know, I'm going to burn you up. Is that referring to Judah's efforts, fruitless efforts to escape from Assyria on their own? I think it would work either way in the context. The peoples will be burned to line, that's clear, like cut thorns which are burned in the fire. Think about that. I love the image of a cut thorn in the fire. Um, how, do thorn, how do thorn bushes feel when they're on the bush? Sure. Yeah. And if you pick, you know, blackberries or something that way, not a real pleasant event. Um, but what happens? You cut the, the thorn bush, let it dry for a few weeks, put it on the fire. What happens? Crackles and burns. Whoa, it just goes up in smoke. You know, with a sizzle, crackle, pop, and whatever, and carries on. That, you know, it's kind of like these, they're, they're like thorn bushes. They're painful, they'll stick anybody, but when they're cut and dried, they burn up real easy. That's what God's going to do to the Assyrians. Don't you really have to appreciate, really in all the prophets, but certainly in Isaiah, so many graphic figures. I mean, these are just vivid illustrations. Uh, you know, I, I'm not, I, I, probably one of my weakest part of, of preaching and teaching is, you know, I don't do well with illustrations. But this is certainly, an, uh, uh, shows you how good illustrations are. How it's really helpful to use good illustrations so the Bible is just chock full of them. Really makes it come to life. All right, comments and thoughts through 12. Larry. If lime represents the Assyrians, when you burn lime, you can have a very large amount of it, and when you burn, there's almost nothing left. Okay, or maybe... That could illustrate the Assyrians. Yeah, or my, my translation is burn to lime. You know, lime is the result of the burning, so who knows? Other thoughts? Yeah. The thorns are Assyrians? I think so. I think in 12, it's the peoples. 
But here in the context, I think the Assyrian peoples. Because that reminds me of English chapter 27, where like, if any, or like, yes. I guess if the Assyrians would have repented, God would have uh, done what he did in Jonah's day. Other thoughts? Yes, Eric. This idea of people being burned, to, or as if they were burnt alive, and somewhat of a disgrace, maybe, like, kind of like, uh, what is it, Boab and Amos? Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, they did do that. They burned the bones to lime, is that what it yeah, says? Yeah. Maybe so. Other thoughts? All right, 13 to 16. Here, you who are, who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burning? He who walks up righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Okay. These are some of the blessings, really in the rest of the chapter, for the righteous. Um... Who can live with the consuming fire, with the continual burning? That's a reference to whom? What's the continual burning? God, sure. Because... God's wrath against sin always burns. This is a part of God's nature that doesn't change. He's a continual fire. He's a consuming fire. Who can live with Him? I mean, here we are sinners. How can we, how can we be with God? Well, here's how we can be with God. He'll, he'll tell us. There are characteristics that we have to have and we can dwell with God. Reminds me of Psalm 15 and Psalm 24. He who walks righteously, speaks with sincerity, rejects unjust gain, shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe, stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be with the impregnable rock. He can be with God. He can be in a secure place because God's in the impregnable rock. So if you're with God, you can't be shaken. You can't be moved. The rock is solid. These are the characteristics of those who can be with the Lord. That's the blessing for the righteous remnant. Comments and questions? There's probably certainly more, obviously, to this than this. But look at that last one in verse 15. It seems to me, and there's some passages like this in the Psalms as well, it seems to me that that would be a reasonable way to analyze 
purpose of watching things in films and TV shows that are filthy. Seems to me like that would not be the characteristic of somebody who can dwell with God, somebody who enjoys being entertained by blasphemy, adultery, lust, drunkenness, murder, hatred, and all that kind of works in the flesh. That that someone who can dwell with God doesn't like to look on those things, doesn't doesn't enjoy those things, turns his gaze away from those things. I really think in our generation we've compromised way too much with our degree of enjoyment of things that are corrupt. We don't have as much of a hatred and just, you know, sickening feeling at some of those kinds of things. That's my sermon for this passage, but comments and questions. Uh, what does everything it mean when it says, uh, who shakes his hands lest they hold a God? No, I don't want that money. Get that away from me. Yeah. You see justice there. Righteousness. You know, he he rejects unjust gain. He doesn't allow his hands to take a bribe. Wes? He says, he stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed. Does that mean, what does that entail? Is that in like a modern day? I think it would be not taking your enjoyment, not 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 delighting in hearing about yeah, about sin and wickedness. I would connect those two together. You know, I mean, a righteous man hates evil. He does. He's not entertained by it. I just that. I don't know. Maybe there's maybe that's not the right approach to that. But I mean, what do you think? I mean, I would have no problem with seeing Jesus occasionally. You know, oh, I don't know, playing around at a sport or something like that. I don't know if he did, but that wouldn't seem inconsistent with his character. Can you see Jesus, you know, going to a raunchy movie and laughing at the off-color jokes? Or even wanting to hear them? It's just it's really hard for me to imagine that Jesus would have found any pleasure in that. And I know you could say, well, okay, he wouldn't find pleasure in that, but there's other parts of it that you find pleasure in. Well, I can see that. But I wonder how much of it there'd have to be before it was so sickening to Jesus that he would have found no pleasure in the pleasurable parts. I don't know the answers to all of those things. But would it not be true that, I don't know, I mean, is there anything you're really sensitive about? You know, is there any, maybe you've got a physical defect or mental defect or something that really bothers you and you really feel kind of self-conscious about? It, would, you, um, would you enjoy a movie that made fun of that particular defect that you're really sensitive about? Well, if we really love God, really sensitive toward Him, would we enjoy a movie that made fun of Him? 
maybe even think about if you had a friend. I mean, you know, you've got a friend who's who's handicapped in some way or he's got some special characteristic. You wouldn't want to see a movie that makes fun of that because you really like your friend. I think, I think anything that makes fun of the Lord, that makes light of the Lord, is almost so disgusting to us. It would be hard to enjoy anything else when we felt like we paid money to see that. I don't know exactly where to draw those lines, but I do think it's relevant to ask those questions. Comments? In this particular verse, I see the, the concept of being bloodthirsty. And uh, and that, that that would be connected with those who delight in hearing about these things. And that, that typifies, I think, a lot of what we see in entertainment today that you know people feed on that idea of bloodthirstiness. Sometimes that's what we really like. There's some sort of a I don't know. A gene for enjoyment of that kind. I don't see Jesus going to the Colosseum and watch the gladiators, you know, uh, have their way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Dustin. Um, you made the comment of you don't know where you would draw the line. I would almost see there's a danger in even drawing a line. You shouldn't even draw a line because when you have a line drawn, you see, well, that's as far as I can get. I can't go past there, but I can do anything that leads up to there. It's like when you have the line, you feel like there's just there's the standard that I that I can't cross, and we shouldn't even be thinking about that. Everywhere in the New Testament says, "Abhor what is evil, flee from what is evil." It, that's seeing the line and getting as close to it as you can isn't fleeing. It's not abhorring anything. It's and really when you're when you're trying to look down and see where you've crossed the line, you've already crossed it. You don't see a line because it's behind you. We can't draw that line. We need to be as far away from it as we possibly can. Thank you. So I feel like there's a danger in even drawing a line in the first place. Good point, Matt. I've kind of been struck by a quote I read by one of the early church fathers about, he was kind of talking in the context of gladiator fights, but he said, how can it be right to see with our eyes what it's wrong to do with our hands? And that's just stuck with me. And, and it's more for us... It's even more than that. How can it be right to seek to see, to enjoy see? I mean, we even go steps beyond that, which is even more difficult to imagine. To choose to see. I think we're thinking about Mindy. This is a little different, but could you put gossip in this category too? Like Probably. Like and just people who are really interested in that and want to do bad things about other people. Sure. I agree. Thank you. Some nice. Other comments? I see exactly what he's saying about drawing the line. That, and I think you would agree with this, but just that you need to you need to put set, set a standard that you that you feel is, is something that you can't cross. You know, if you don't put boundaries up there, you might look down and you're like, I've crossed them. You know, one day, you've got to set something, so you've made up your mind before that time ever comes, that decision ever comes, what you're going to do. No, I'm not saying, you know, saying PG-13 movies is, is wrong. You know, I'm not saying that kind of line, but saying certain materials or certain 
um, topics. I, I don't, you know, want to go view those things. So, you know, setting boundaries, I think, can be good. The ideal is we wouldn't want to. The ideal is if we got stuck in a place like that, seeing something like that, we'd make us sick and we'd hate it. We'd get out of there as fast as we could because we didn't want it. But you don't want to get caught in it. Exactly. I agree. I'm just saying, you know, we got to work on it. Think about why, why does this entertain us? What's wrong with us when it does? Well, if the line... Is don't even get close to it at all, then okay, I can agree with that. That's, that's, sure. that's fine. That's, yeah. yeah, we're all agreeing on that, but yeah. Awesome. JD. I feel like these discussions help me because I feel like I grew up hearing, you know, that movies are bad because of the, the dirty scenes and the cuss words. As if the only thing that those things could do danger to you are lust and learning swear words. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's so much more to it than that. I agree. That, you know, just set your minds on things above, you know, and uh, think on these sort of things. It, that the real damage is not going to come in the end from, you know, certainly the evil companions, corrupted morals, but it's what are we, what are we looking on right here? You know, it's, that we're shutting our eyes uh, from evil, and, th- and that's, uh, that's so much more subtle and dangerous. Yes, and there's probably all kinds of things that need to be thought about, but I think John's comment, the bloodthirstiness is, uh, I mean, you know, obviously lust and cursing are not the only kinds of sins, or the only kinds of things that ought to be repulsive to us as Christians. There are other things as well. And um, the more we love God, the more we love to see pure, righteous things, the more we hate the very appearance of things that are filthy and polluted, what, in whatever way. Look. I think what uh, the danger is is when we try to draw a line halfway. And because when we go to movies and entertainment, I mean, movies is the only problem, it is a big part of it. When we try to think, when we try to say things like, uh, it's wrong to go to movies that have been scenes in them, but it's okay to go to a movie if there's people just dressed slightly immodestly. I mean, when we, when we start drawing a line halfway between extremes, then that's when it's a sin, because it doesn't matter, because... Our standards are not the same as God's standards. So when we start labeling different things extreme and start drawing a line in between that, then we may have said because we're putting our standards above God's standards. Okay. So go back to the text and think about what he's saying. We see God as a consuming fire, as a continual burning. We see God's righteous indignation and hatred of wickedness. Well, who can live with him? Well, he who walks righteously, speaks with sincerity, rejects unjust gain, shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe, shuts his eyes from looking upon evil, you know, stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed, he will draw on the heights. You know, it's, it's this kind of a person, a person whose character, whose attitude is compatible with the God who burns up against sin, who just who just hates it. Those kind of people that fit the character of God can live with it. That's the goal. We need to think also uh, one danger we have in some discussions like this is that we only think in terms of 
well, give me a list of the prohibited, uh, you know, things or whatever. There's more to it than that. We need to really understand and fill ourselves with a closeness to the God who is a continual burning. All right, other comments and thoughts? 17 to 24. Your eyes will see the king and his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Your heart will meditate on air. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the powers? You will not see a fierce people, people of obscure speech beyond perception, but a stammering tongue you cannot understand. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed people. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of the stakes will ever be removed. blessings we have. Not only to dwell with God, but in 17 to see the king and his beauty. Who would the king be? God or the Messiah. Um, That's such a great blessing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, He doesn't see, verse 15, evil. He sees the king and his beauty. Where is the enemy? Verse 18, verse 19, they're gone. (laughs) Um, The blessings are to be with God and to have those who are the enemies, the the ones who, the Assyrian invaders who count, who weigh, who count the towers, who are fierce people of unintelligible speech, of stammering tongue. You know I tried to do that. (laughs) They're gone. All he can see is the king and his beauty. You know, when we're with God, he deals with the enemies. When we're with God, we come to see him. And we have the blessing of the security of the city in 20. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem. An undisturbed habitation, a tent, which will not be folded. Its stakes will never be pulled up. That's a really uh, great paradox. A permanent tent. <laughs> you know, But that's what we're going to have. We'll have Jerusalem as a tent that's solid and sure and never moves. Security is what we gain when we have the Lord. He'll be... Uh, a a savior to us. There's some parts of this that I'm not clear on. Uh, but in general, the point is we have the Lord as our savior. He delivers us in every situation. He's our judge, lawgiver, king. We may be like a crippled ship. Verse 23. Tackle slack. Can't hold the base of the mast firmly. Can't spread out the sail. But the lame will take the plunder. 
God will give the victory even to us when we're crippled and weak and inable, unable? Because he's our king. Because he's able. No resident will say, I'm sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Which is, of course, the biggest problem we face is our iniquity. And the forgiveness is what strengthens us and makes us capable of taking the spoil even though we're crippled. So, in 13 to 24, you see the blessings of dwelling with God, seeing the king, having the enemy vanish, having the uh, permanent tent to dwell in, having the Lord as the Savior providing the abundant spoil for us even though we're lame like a crippled ship. That's the overview at least. Some, some uh, specific things here I don't necessarily have a great answer to. But you have questions and comments. <coughs> Well, I think he's saying the Assyrians will be gone. Okay, so, and that's what I thought I was saying, but I guess that could also tie into chapter 28, verse 11. Exactly. When he talks about a legion tongue that you don't know. Talking about the Assyrians. Yes, exactly. Other thoughts? Comments? And even Psalm 19. Yeah. What a blessing to have the guidance and direction of God as our lawgiver. With this tabernacle that's not taken down, I, I kind of see the, the children of Israel as, as they're going through the wilderness and they continue to take up the tabernacle as they keep on moving through the land. And then finally they get to the land, they lay down the tabernacle, which is the temple, and it doesn't move because they, they've come to the land, it's their, their promised rest and God's proposed promises. Mm-hmm. Take another break right here, and we will work on 34 and 35. First of all, last hour.